I want to ask you, Cornerstone, if you would please turn in your Bible to James chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 10. James 4, 6 through 10. Uh, let me begin, though, with verse 5. Verse 5, James says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do come before you right now. And I ask, Lord, that you might quiet our hearts before you. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me, your unworthy servant, with your spirit, that, Lord, you might minister your word, that you might minister grace through me to your precious people. I submit myself to you, and I pray, Lord, that you might be glorified, that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Spirit of God, according to the Bible, has been sent into the world in order to convict this fallen world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is a grace from God to point out our sin. Unfortunately, we often respond wrongly when confronted with our sin. Like Adam and Eve, we run, hide, look for ways to cover our sin and shame. We lie. We point our finger at others. We, we blame shift. It's because of my upbringing. It's my parents' fault. My spouse is the reason we fight. But she did it too. Uh, the Lord will have... No such excuses. He holds us accountable. Our primary text today is James 4, 6 through 10. But we do well to view James 4, 6 through 10 within the larger context. Remember that James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it must have been like to grow up with a perfect brother Jesus never did anything wrong. James had a front row seat to perfection. He saw how theology is to be lived out in life. This perhaps explains why James focuses so much attention on functional theology. He is concerned about the fruit that flows from genuine faith. He looks closely at lifestyle and he puts his finger on the attitudes that give rise to action. And through his letter, James spends considerable energy confronting sin. James confronts sin. In chapter 1, for example, it is sinful when we fail to consider it joy whenever we face various trials. Sinful when we pray for wisdom and then doubt our generous God to bestow such wisdom upon us. It's sinful when poverty-stricken not to see our riches in Christ, when wealthy not to acknowledge our humble state, when facing temptation to blame God, uh, when we fail to humbly receive God's word, uh, when we fail to obey God's word, when we fail to bridle our tongue, when we remain heartless to others who are in need. Remember that James says perfect religion includes visiting the orphans and widows in their distress. It is sinful when we allow ourselves to be stained by the world. And then we move into chapter 2 again. It is sinful whenever we show personal favoritism, when we fail to show mercy to those in need, when our 
profession of faith is not accompanied by a possession of works. Chapter 3, it is sinful when we do not use our tongues for the purpose of building up one another. James dedicates here in chapter 3, 12 verses to the topic of the tongue. James describes the tongue as a destructive fire, a restless evil filled with deadly poison used to curse men. When we practice worldly wisdom, that is sinful as well. Worldly wisdom is marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James calls this earthly, natural, demonic. He calls worldly wisdom demonic. And now we come to chapter 4, the immediate context in which today's passage is found. Chapter 4, James launches into a topic that we are all familiar with, that we all relate to, fighting. We are in sin when we fight. Have you ever fought with another person, a parent, child, sibling, in-law, fellow believer in Christ? James raises the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And he answers the question by saying that we are the reason we fight. Our own selfish, sinful desires lie at the heart of the problem. James equates fighting with adultery. It is friendship with the world. When we fight, we behave, James says, as enemies of God. And so, from James 1.1 all the way through 4.4, James provides us with a laundry list of sin. We cannot work through James without being confronted by the doctrine of sin. And then we read in James 4.5, a passage that admittedly is difficult to translate. You will have to bear with me. This is a difficult passage. A reading of different translations reveals the difficulty. The NASB reads, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Note the King James Version. It reads, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Or the NIV. It reads, The spirit he has caused to live in us envies intensely. Now bear with me. This is the most difficult part of the message. I warn you ahead of time. The difficulty here centers around the following questions. One, does the verse speak of the human spirit or of the Holy Spirit? Two, is the intense envy or jealous yearning best understood as positive or negative? Three, is the spirit, whether we take it as human spirit or Holy Spirit, is the spirit the subject or the direct object of the sentence? I offer my tentative take. First, context indicates James speaks of the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. The term for spirit occurs one other time in James 2.26 and clearly refers to the spirit that animates people, i.e. the human spirit. Furthermore, from uh, chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 4, James constantly focuses on ambitions and passions of the human spirit. 4, 5 seems like a summation of the sinful condition of the human spirit. Second, it seems best to take the combination of envy and longing negatively. Literally, the phrase is, Toward envy, he or it longs, or longs toward envy. Excluding James 4, 5 in the New Testament, the verb for longing is always positive, but the noun for envy is always negative. This is not that helpful. However, longing can be negative in the Septuagint. 
the Greek version of the Old Testament in intertestamental literature and in Greek writers such as Plato and Herodotus. Uh, again, this, this longing is viewed as negative. Envy is always a vice in the New Testament as well as in Greek moral writing. Uh, scripture does teach that God yearns jealously for his people as in Zechariah 1.14, but the positive term for such a jealous yearning is not used by James. It seems reasonable to take the combination of envy and longing in James negatively. So, if James is speaking of the human spirit, and if the combination of envy and longing is negative, then we have the answer to our third question. The subject of the sentence is the human spirit, not God. James thus provides a summary statement related to the doctrine of man's depravity. The spirit which God has made to dwell in us envies intensely. This is the view that John MacArthur presents, though he admits he is not dogmatic. Consider briefly the larger context here. James has argued that friendship with the world is enmity to God, towards God. James furthers his argument in the form of a question regarding their biblical understanding of the human condition. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose, that the scripture speaks in vain? James then presents a biblical view of man. The spirit which God has made to dwell in us envies intensely. The Lord has placed within us the human spirit, but as a result of our sin in Adam and the subsequent fall, we are tainted through and through. We envy intensely. This expression of self-exaltation and pride is illustrated throughout the scripture. Adam and Eve envied God's knowledge of good and of evil, Genesis 3. Cain envied the approval God gave to Abel, Genesis 4. Jacob and Esau struggled to gain the blessing of their father, Genesis 27. Joseph told his brothers they would one day bow to him, but they sold him into slavery, thinking it would never come to pass, Genesis 37. Saul envied the praise of David, gained after he defeated Goliath. Uh, the women of Israel sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. We see this in 1 Samuel 18. Absalom envied the throne of his father David and started a civil war to obtain it, 2 Samuel 15. The disciples, now we're in the New Testament and we see that the disciples coveted places of honor in Jesus's kingdom. It was not enough to be with Jesus. Some of the disciples longed to sit at his right and at his left, Matthew 20. James confronts his readers with their sinful human condition. If anyone can read through James and not feel the sting of his own sin, he must check for a pulse. But James does not just confront us with our sin. In our passage today, James tells us what we are to do when confronted by our sin. Our message is entitled, when God confronts us in our sin. Eight steps we need to take whenever God confronts us in our sin. Step number one, we need to embrace God's grace. Verse six reads, but he gives a greater grace. James presents a summary statement regarding our sinful human condition and now follows with a contrasting conjunction but what follows is a remarkable declaration. He gives, God gives a greater grace. Against the backdrop of our many sins, against the backdrop of our fighting and bickering, against the backdrop of our fallen and depraved condition, James declares, but he gives a greater grace. God's grace comes to us as he confronts us in our sin. Through his word, we are challenged, corrected, 
and convicted. This is grace, but we would be remiss if we failed to recall the greatest demonstration of the grace of God, a grace poured out upon us through the cross. This is the greater grace we must wrap our hearts around whenever confronted with our sin. We must, if we are to continue in the steps that follow, we must lay hold of the cross. It is at the foot of the cross that we best understand how bad our sin really is. Because of our sins against an infinitely holy God, the Lord Jesus, the perfect lamb, had to die if we were to have the hope of eternal life. We deserve punishment for our sin. We deserve for the unmitigated wrath of Almighty God to be poured out upon us in judgment. We rightly deserve to be cast into the eternal lake of fire and experience punishment for our own sin throughout eternity. But the Lord Jesus willingly went to the cross in our stead. He was punished for our sin. The incomprehensible wrath and fury of Almighty God was poured out upon his innocent son so that you and I might be forgiven and granted eternal life. Are you interested in knowing how bad sin is? Then throw yourself at the foot of the cross and behold the Lord Jesus writhing in agony and pain. Behold his head, his hands, and his feet, a crown of thorns on his brow and spikes that were hammered through his hands and his feet. See if you can find any place on his naked body where the skin has not been shredded by a cat of nine tails. Look on the ground beneath his feet and you will see a puddle formed by your Savior's dripping blood. And think upon the fact that such physical agony was nothing compared to the emotional and spiritual pain that was suffered as a result of abandonment. It was bad enough that his friends bailed on him. Worse is the fact that the father's wrath was poured out upon his son. Our sin did not go unpunished. Jesus bled his blood to atone for our sin, and the father turned away. Such abandonment, such isolation, we will never this side of eternity fully comprehend and appreciate the sufferings of our Savior for the salvation of our souls. And yet the Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. This is the greater grace with which God confronts our sin. When God confronts us with our sin, we must reflect on this greater grace of God as expressed primarily through the cross of Christ. But there are additional steps that we need to take when confronted by our sin. And if we want to experience the greater grace of God working in our lives. Step number two, we need to reject pride and embrace humility. We need to reject pride and embrace humility. James says, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from Proverbs 3.34. God not only opposes pride, but he opposes those who are proud. Pride is deceptive. It lays hold of us and leaves us thinking that we are well when, in fact, we might not be. It gets in the way of our reckoning with personal sin. Pride prevents us from going where James wants to take us in the verses that follow. Pride is the root of Satan's rebellion and pride is the root of all of our rebellion. Every sin, every single sin serves as an expression of pride. Pride is a 
me-centered attitude that exalts self and seeks to be served. Pride gives rise to the jealousy, envy, and selfish ambition that James addresses earlier in his letter. Pride is a deadly disease. If we could choose between pride or the coronavirus, we would be wise to prefer the coronavirus. Jonathan Edwards points out seven sneaky symptoms of the infection of pride. One, fault finding. Pride causes us to filter out our own evil while magnifying the faults in others. Two, a harsh spirit. Those who have the virus of pride in their hearts are easily irritated when others fail to measure up to their own expectations. Three, superficiality. The proud person is chiefly concerned about what others think of him rather than being open and honest about his own struggles. Four, defensiveness. This form of pride results in a defensive response whenever instruction, corrective counsel, or rebuke is offered. Five, presumption before God. This manifestation of pride fails to remember that God is to be reverenced and respected. His will must be embraced. We must not presume upon the Lord that we know best how the Lord should treat us. Six, desperation for attention. Pride hungers for attention, respect, and worship. This self-centered approach to life demands that the Lord must decrease while self must increase. Seven, neglecting others. Pride prefers some people over others. James has already addressed favoritism. Proud people fall prey to personal favoritism. And there is more that could be said. Our passage tells us that our God stands in opposition to the proud. But as we read on, we see that God gives grace. God gives grace to the humble. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility sees the good of what God is doing in others. It is gentle in its treatment of others. It does not tear others apart. It is not superficial. It is genuine, honest, and sincere. The humble person openly acknowledges his faults and struggles. Humility receives instruction, correction, and rebuke with open arms. The humble person honors the Lord even when life gets hard. Humility has no problem when others receive recognition. The humble person feels no need to draw attention to self. Additionally, the humble person thinks and cares much about other people. Above all else, the humble person acknowledges his total dependence upon God. He knows that apart from God, he is nothing and that he can accomplish nothing of any eternal good. And these are but a few of the ways that humility expresses itself. And our passage tells us that humility and the experience of God's grace go hand in hand. This brings us to the next step we need to take when God in his grace confronts us with our sins. Step number three, we need to submit to God. Verse seven reads, submit therefore to God. The Greek word hupotasso means to place oneself under. We are to place ourselves under the authority of God. He calls the shots. We are to hear and obey his instruction and commands. Uh, we're not talking merely about outward obedience. Uh, our submission is to flow from a willing heart. This does not mean that submission is always easy. There are times when we struggle with submission. There are times when the Lord wants us to do what we don't desire to do. I don't feel like forgiving my spouse. His sins against me are way too hurtful. I know that God's word tells me to forgive, but I can't. I won't. I don't feel like obeying my parents. They're telling me that I need to help out with the chores. 
but I want to hang with my friends. I have better things to do than clean my room and mow the grass. Uh, there are times when we are asked to do what we are afraid to do. I don't want to confess my sins to others. What will my family say? What will my care group leader think? How will my pastor react? We are commanded to submit to God based upon what James is teaching. Such obedience is not always easy. It calls for courage. It demands trust. It is a matter of faith. Trust and faith in the Lord first and foremost. Ultimately, we submit to God, the one who loves us and knows what is best for us, to the one who gives us a greater grace. Such a grand view of God should fuel our submission. And when we submit to God, we are wise to anticipate opposition. Your well-meaning friends might counsel you against forgiving your spouse. They might encourage you to end your marriage. Your friends might tell you that your parents are being unreasonable. They may encourage disobedience. But ultimately, as scripture teaches, our battle is against spiritual forces in high places. And this takes us to the next step. Number four, we need to resist the attacks of the devil. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This passage serves as a reminder that the devil is real and that he desires our demise. He is an evil foe to be resisted. Whenever the Lord in his grace does a work in and through us, we should not be surprised by spiritual attack. Our submission to God may be and often is opposed by the devil. In 1 Peter 5.8, we read, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. In Ephesians 6.10, we read, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There is a devil, and he is a schemer. Billy Graham once stated, The devil has many tricks up his sleeve, but surely one of his most successful is to make us believe he does not even exist. We may admit that evil is real, but they deny that behind it are demonic spiritual forces bent on our destruction and death. Or we may deny the devil's true nature by turning him into a harmless cartoon character with a red suit and pitchfork. But Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Someone has said that the devil doesn't need to think up new tricks because the old ones still work. Billy Graham says it's true. Lust, pride, power, discouragement, doubt, money, escapism, pleasure, hate, anger, jealousy, selfishness, the ways he attacks us are almost endless. If one temptation doesn't work, he will try another and he will keep on trying. This is why by faith we must lay hold of the grace of God and walk in humble submission. Yes, the devil may attack, but we are commanded to resist our foe. God will not give a command that we cannot obey. Job teaches us that God is sovereign over the evil one. Satan needed God's permission to attack Job. John makes it clear that Satan serves as an instrument whereby believers transition from spiritual childhood to young adulthood. In 1 John 2, 12 to 14, we observe that one gains spiritual strength as a result of overcoming the evil one through the power of God's word. John says in 1 John 2, 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The young men, by the word of God, have overcome the evil one according to John. And thus, 
John declares them to be strong. We see then that satanic attacks serve God's purposes in strengthening his saints. And James 4, 7 promises that as we resist the devil, he will flee. Friends, Satan desires that you cling to your sin. The last thing he wants is for you to acknowledge your sin in humble submission at the foot of the cross. This is a direction the devil does not desire for you to take. And this takes us to the next step that the devil does not want for us to take. Step number five, we need to draw near to God in prayer. Draw near to God in prayer. This is what he says in verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Against the backdrop of satanic attack, we are commanded to draw near to God in prayer. God is our rock, our refuge. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. In him we find shelter, safety, and security. He is the good shepherd who leads and feeds, who guides and protects. This is the God that we are commanded to draw near to. Such a command implies that God wants us. He wants you. He wants me to draw near. He promises as we draw near to him in prayer that he will draw near to us. He wants us to experience his presence. He's a relational God. In eternity past, each member of the triune God existed in relationship with one another. And our relational God invites us into the wonder of this relationship. He wants us to join him in relationship. The fact that the Lord bled his blood for us communicates to us his desire for relationship with us. In Hebrews 4.16, the writer, having described Jesus as our great high priest, encourages us to draw near with confidence to the throne of God's grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in our time of need. When confronted with our sin, we do well to humble ourselves and draw near to God. When we draw near to God, we discover a merciful and gracious God who will draw near to us. Perhaps the Lord has been confronting you with your sin. He may be confronting you now, even as I speak, and as he is confronting you, he is providing you with steps that he wants you to take. And among such steps is the command to draw near to him in prayer. With this in mind, let us continue with the next step that we do well to take. Step six, we need to wash ourselves. We need to wash ourselves. James says, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James here uses Old Testament purification language. God is infinitely holy, pure, and undefiled. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Those who approached God were to do so in a reverent manner. The unclean were required to wash. In Exodus 30, 17, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, and Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water, that they may not die, or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they may not die, and it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generation. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 30, we read, and he placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, and he put water in it for washing. And from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they entered the tent of meeting. 
And when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Numbers 19.20 reads, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. As you can tell from these verses, and there are many others, it is important that we come to the Lord having been cleansed. These Old Testament passages underscore this importance of ceremonial washing. Such a practice pointed to man's need to be undefiled in order to approach God. King David communicates our need for cleansing in Psalm 24, verse 3, where he says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand at his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. James picks up on this when he commands his readers to cleanse their hands. It is expected that we approach the Lord with clean hands. But James knows better than to stop here. That is why he continues with the command, purify your hearts. It is not enough to clean the outside of the cup. The inside must be clean as well. We are called to purity from the inside out. The heart is the seat of our thoughts, desires, motives, intents, and will. We are called to nothing less than a complete purity that springs from the inside and works its way outward. Friends, sin is serious. We cannot afford to compromise with sin. Those who do, James refers to as double-minded. We cannot be half-hearted in our commitment to Christ. We must take sin seriously and practice radical amputation in our efforts to be done with sin. I think it is helpful for us at this point to remember that the basis for such holiness is the greater grace that James earlier refers to. It is only by the grace of God that we take sin seriously and through faith in Christ alone that we experience freedom from the guilt and the power of sin. Our purity is an imputed purity. Through faith in Christ, we are positionally pure. James here is calling us to practical purity. He is calling us to holiness, and such practical holiness is dependent upon the grace of God. We need the Lord to impart his holiness to us. But such an impartation of God's holiness in our lives requires human responsibility. Thus, we are commanded to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. Brothers, sisters, let us resolve through what God through James is telling us let us resolve through faith to walk in holiness. I confess, this coronavirus has put me on edge. <laughs> the other day, I was walking in the line outside of Sam's Club. I looked around wanting to know that everyone was wearing a face mask. When I got in line, I was careful to stand more than six feet behind the person in front of me. I found myself on edge when the person behind me stood within three feet of me. That bothered me. And then while in the store, more than a few people walked right by me within two to three feet of me, violating the six-foot rule. That bothered me. One person bumped into me, literally bumped into me. That bothered me. Why was I so bothered? Because I do not want to get coronavirus and die, nor do I want to pass the virus onto someone else and have them die. But how much more should we be bothered by the virus of sin 
in our own lives. How much more should we be bothered when the sin in our lives affects others around us? I think I have washed my hands more in the past six or seven weeks than I have the whole year prior. Yet how much more do we need to be spiritually clean? We need our hands clean and our heart purified. Brothers and sisters, the Lord through James is declaring it is high time for holiness. There is no room for duplicity. We must not embrace compromise. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We cannot serve two masters. There should be no allowance for double-mindedness among the people of God. Let us resolve not to settle for anything less than complete devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we find within ourselves any hint of duplicity, let us settle for nothing less than complete brokenness. This brings us to the next thing we need to do when confronted with our sin. Step seven, we need to feel overwhelmed by our depravity. In verse nine, James says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Several years ago, I was working on my counseling degree at the Master's University. In the practicum class, uh, the students counseled one another. These were not hypothetical counseling issues. They were real and they were personal. I remember one of the pastor's students feeling concerned that he never wept. The counselor asked a ton of good questions to gather information. We learned that the pastor never wept even over his own sin. When it came time for the counselor student to counsel the counselee student, he asked the question, where in the Bible are you commanded to weep? The counselor insisted that the pastor not be concerned over his lack of tears. The counsel seemed okay at the time, but now I'm not so sure. James here commands his readers. He commands them when confronted with their sin, be miserable and mourn and weep. It is more than appropriate. In fact, it's commanded that we grieve greatly over our sin. It is appropriate to weep miserably over the sin that we see in our own lives. We grieve, not because we got caught, but because we have sinned against a holy and good God. This is what David did in Psalm 51. And you will find no greater prayer of confession than you find from David in Psalm 51. You recall his prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Listen to what David prays. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only I have sinned. And I have done what is evil in thy sight so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me to know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. 
Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be converted to thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Here David displays being overwhelmed by his sin. He is not winking at his own sin. He's not burying his head in the sand and turning away from his sin. He is allowing his laughter be, to be turned into mourning and his joy to gloom. He is broken over his sin. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus declares in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, those who out of the overflow of their poverty of spirit, recognizing their bankruptcy, seeing God for who he is, high and holy. Blessed are those who mourn, weeping over their sin, Jesus says, for they shall be comforted. And in our passage today, we are given no option when confronted by the reality of our own sin. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And I submit to you that if and when this happens, that is an indicator of the grace of God in your life, taking you low so that he might in due time lift you up. Let us now turn to the last step we need to take when the Lord confronts us with our sin. Step number eight, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We read in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This last step brings us full circle. We began with God's greater grace and the fact that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here we are commanded, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. This command serves as a summary statement and brings everything to a head. This is what we must do. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. When God confronts us with our sin, we need to embrace his greater grace. It is displayed at the foot of the cross and confronts our sin. God's confrontation is designed for our good. Thus, we reject pride. We embrace humility. We submit to the Lord. And we are not surprised when our submission is met with resistance. The devil and his demons are likely to attack. We need to resist the attacks of the devil. And we need to draw near to our Lord in prayer. And as we draw near, we must wash ourselves. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The gospel serves as the soap with which we can be clean. But as we take these steps, we do well to feel overwhelmed by our sin. When confronted with our sin, we, we are to be miserable and mourn and weep. Our laughter is to be turned into mourning, our joy to gloom. This is the proper response when God confronts when he confronts us with our sin. This is what it means to humble ourselves 
in the presence of the Lord. And our text ends with a promise. It is a wonderful reminder of the greater grace of God. It is news that feels too good to be true. That if we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt us. He will lift us up. He will turn around and replace our mourning with laughter and our gloom with joy. He is a good God and he wants what is best for us. The one who loves us and bled his blood for us desires for us to be lifted up. Friends, this is his plan for us. This is his desire for us that we be lifted up to the praise of his glory. I would like to ask if you would please pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you and we think about what this passage has taught us and we recognize, Lord, that we live in a day where sin is rampant. We know, Lord, that all have sinned, we have sinned, and even as we think about our nation, our nation has sinned. There is rampant evil. And Lord, if ever there was a day when we need for you to revive us, to bring about revival in our country, it is now. Lord, we know that in times past you brought great awakenings, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. We pray, Lord, that you might send forth a third great awakening, that you would send forth a revival, that it would result in brokenness and tears and weeping and mourning, that, Lord, you would help, you would help us to lay hold of this greater grace of God. Let your grace be poured out in our lives, through our lives, and in this country. I pray, Lord, if there is anyone who has yet to put their faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would do so now. I pray, Lord, for any of us who feels that we are struggling greatly with our own sin, and perhaps we are being double-minded, perhaps we are struggling more than we ought to be struggling, perhaps we are going after the idol rather than worshiping you, Lord. I pray for you to do a mighty work in us, that, Lord, you would purify the church, that you would cleanse your bride, that you would help us, Lord, to be all that you call us to be. Wash us and cleanse us. Let us humble ourselves before you, acknowledge our need, and, Lord, we pray that you would, in your incomprehensible grace, that you would lift us up for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.